All right, y'all, you can turn to Daniel chapter 1. We're starting a new series today, Daniel chapter 1. That book's going to be, um, it's in the Old Testament, but it's going to be a little bit to the, to the right of center. If you're, if you're looking, it's, it can kind of hide there. It's, you'll find Psalms and Proverbs, and then it'll go to some of the major prophets like Isaiah and um, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then right after that, you'll find a kind of a medium-sized book named, Jeremiah, or named Daniel. Turn there with me. Daniel chapter 1. I don't know if y'all realize this or if this is weird to you guys, but it is February of 2021. Is that weird for anybody else? Like, in some ways, last year was like the longest year ever. Like, will it ever end? But then when I think about this, I'm like, man, I don't, how do we get here already? Um, and I know that that's just sort of a reflection on time in general, right? The whole adage of uh, long days and short years. So I, I get that, but I think in some peculiar ways, last year was, uh, was unique. And, uh, and I think one of the things that happens when we are in a season of sort of collective uh, disorientation, right, as a, as a culture, one of the things that happens when we go through these sort of meta crises or, uh, you know, kind of cultural, we're all going through it together, you know, Changes in leadership, changes in, um, you know, their social movements, all of those things sort of lead us to ask some questions and, and have some fears and some wonderings and, and, and sort of have these existential processes that maybe we don't have whenever things are going well, right? Like when things are just kind of uh, status quo and, and, and comfortable, we're not asking a ton of questions about, you know, is this judgment or is this the end and what's, what's next or, or even what's the future going to be like, right? Like we've thought about that more like, okay... Where is our, is our world headed? Where is our country headed? What's it going to look like for our kids? Uh, how, do, how do I need to um, prepare, right? Like how much ammo and canned goods to buy? Um, or um, what, what response do I need to have? to what's, like, And so we've been asking, I think, more of those questions than perhaps we have at other times. And, and the good news is the Bible doesn't leave us without answers. That the Bible doesn't fail to speak to that and give us hope. Because here's the actual good news, is that we're not all that special, right? Like, yes, these are historic times, and I, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to think about that, but at the same time, we're not the first people to go through disruptions and chaos and displacements, right? And so uh, it's good to reflect back on God's faithfulness and his sovereignty over this, and, and that's exactly what we're hoping in this time uh, in the book of Daniel will do for us as God's people, that it will give us some grounding Right, some footing to stand in our, our sort of ever-changing and disorienting world and culture, and uh, some instructions on how to respond, but ultimately, and, and beyond that, some hope right, to, to really endure, to persevere, and to live faithfully in the midst of that. So that's, that's, the, that's the hope of this series. We'll be in it for a few months. We're going to start slow and get some context in chapter one, and then we'll start moving pretty quick uh, through chapters later. But the title is A Pattern and a Promise. And and, and really, what Daniel's going to do is walk us through, hey, there, there's a pattern to history. There's a pattern to world powers. There's a, power, there's a pattern to earthly kingdoms. And yet there is a promise that stands uh, over and above and enduring through all of those other things. And so um, we're going to look together at Daniel. And so Daniel has a lot of stories that you're familiar with, right? The, the lion's den and, and um, the fiery furnace and some of those uh, things. And then at the end, it's got some stuff you're not as familiar with, right? It's, uh, it's, it's a unique book because it kind of starts out with a lot of narrative and some of those stories that you're familiar with are in there. Uh, but then in chapter seven, it kind of turns to uh, apocalyptic prophecy, which 
If you're not familiar with what that is, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic prophecy. And so the last half of Daniel is much more like Revelation than it is narrative. And it is complex, and um, there's a lot there, but it is a, a treasure trove for, for us in this season of, of cultural movement and change. It, it is going to be really, really rich for us as a people of God. And so um, we will see some examples of how to live faithfully in an increasingly faithless culture. That will be there. But, but in order to, before we go quickly to, to looking at those examples of, of living faithfully, we must first understand God's faithfulness, okay? Because if we're going to live faithfully, we have to first understand God's faithfulness. And before we even get into that, we have to understand God's sovereignty. And how does that relate to nations and world powers and all of those things? So we're just going to look at the first two verses today, and this is going to provide some introduction and context to the book of Daniel and what's happening so that when, as we go through those stories, we will uh, be able to receive the full um, weight and, and um, impact of what God is teaching us in those stories. So if you would, look at Daniel with me. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let's pray. God, would you just help us uh, as we approach your word? Anchor us, Lord, in, in your enduring hope, in your kingship, Lord, that we belong to you and you are on your throne. Would you help us with that, Lord? We just submit that this is your word and we ask that you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' good name, amen. All right, well, one of the first things we see is, uh, is that God is at work in the midst of nations conquering his people, and that is a peculiar passage, but we can't move too quickly past it. So what is happening here? What sets the scene for the famous stories that you know of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Radshach and Benny, if you've seen the VeggieTales deal? Um, what sets the scene for them to live faithfully and to have these incredible stories is actually a really, really hard truth and moment in history. And what you're seeing here is that God's people are being invaded and moved upon by foreign, pagan, evil empires. And so it's interesting to kind of think about the historical context here, and, and, and it's going to help us center right in what's going on here. It says, in the third year of the, king, uh, the reign of the King Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and, and that right there helps us kind of center, okay, what's going on there? And it says king of Judah, and if you know some of your, your history of, of God's people and his work in that, that, that God made for himself a people, right? If you know the Exodus story, that is not just this crazy story that happens in a vacuum. That's a story of God telling Abraham long you know, before the Exodus, way back in Genesis 12, that he was going to make out of him, this old man who has no kids, he's going to make a great nation. And through that great nation, the whole world will be blessed, right? And so it begins this movement of God creating for himself a people. And you fast forward through the rest of Genesis some crazy, through some crazy events that nobody thought was going well at the time through a famine. And, you know, Joseph, ask Joseph. He didn't think things were going well, but God had a plan. And through that, then we end up with the people of God in Egypt. They're there for 400 years. They end up as slaves. It's going really, really badly. Has God forgotten them? What is he doing? What's happening? And then we get the story of the Exodus, right, where God shows up, sends the plagues, and calls his people out of that slavery and into life with him 
in the promised land, but we gotta, we got to spend a few years in the desert first, right? So you may know some of those stories, but all of that is God making for himself a people. And as he's doing that, he makes this covenant with his people. You get the Ten Commandments and that whole exchange in Exodus 20, where God is saying, hey, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And here's how you're going to live. Because I love you, I want life to go well for you. And because I want my glory to be shown to the rest of the world, I want life to go well for you. And so here's how you're going to live. And he gives them the Ten Commandments plus about another you know, few hundred. And, and so this is how you're to live. God walks all these things out. You've had these laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers where God is, is fleshing all of this out for his people. And one of the things that he, that he does, and it really zeroes in in Leviticus like 26, there's this, there's this passage where God says, hey, you obey me, and I'll bless you. Okay? You obey me, you keep my covenant, you keep my commands, you walk as my people, and I'll bless you. Things will go really well. You will prosper as a nation, as a people. People won't come upon you. They won't conquer you. In fact, they'll fear you. I'll expand your borders. I'll bless your, your agriculture. All, it will go well for you if you obey me and you keep these commands. But then it flips just as quickly and says, and if you disobey me, if you fail to be faithful to me, then there will be judgment and there will be punishment. And so we see that God's people, they want a king, and uh, so God gives them a king, and Saul doesn't work out well, but then David is sort of the, the hero of the Old Testament, um, and, and we see uh, that the, the nation does get to that level of prosperity under King David. And things are, are an incredible place where he expands the borders. He, he, he conquers all of the land that God tells him to, and things are going well. And then David's son Solomon, it starts to get a little messy, but Solomon continues that reign. He builds the, the, uh, the temple, and God's people are dwelling with him, so much so that the world is taking notice. That is happening. The, what God said would happen is happening. People are looking and saying, wow, the, the, the nation of Israel, their God, must be the true God because look at how they're prospering. Look at what he's doing with them. And so that goes well. But then after Solomon, we start to see a spiral that as new kings come and as, the, as that, that throne gets passed down, that things get messier and messier. Eventually that leads to a civil war and the nation of Israel is, is, is broken in two. The northern 10 tribes, it was made of 12 tribes. The northern 10 tribes becomes, they keep the name of Israel. The, the southern two become Judah. And then as you walk through, as you read 2 Kings and, uh, or first and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it's outlining these things from a couple different perspectives. Um, but you'll see all this is laid out where it's, it's really not going well. And the majority of each of these countries' kings are, are not serving the Lord. Some do. We have good ones. We have bad ones. And, and what we see is that um, at some point, about 100 and, between 100 and 150 years before this moment, the northern kingdom of Israel had been overtaken by the Assyrian army, by the Assyrian empire. And this is a huge empire in history. It was a, it was a, a savage people. They, they, were, they were aggressive, and um, the, that sort of overtaking was not pretty. There was prisoners of war. There was uh, deaths. There was all sorts of that sort of really horrible war stuff that you kind of think about happened there. But the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, stayed faithful a little bit longer. They had a few more kings that were good with the Lord. In fact, Jehoiakim that we hear about, his dad, Josiah, was one of the, one of the highlights. He was a faithful king. He restored the worship. He destroyed the idols that others had put up, in, and he restored the, the kingdom of Judah to worshiping God. But then, after he dies, one of his sons takes over. That guy gets killed, and another army puts this dude, Jehoiakim, in 
place. And Jehoiakim is one of the worst kings. He is not uh, following in his father's footsteps. In fact, he is not faithful to the Lord, so much so that we see later he ends up burning, cutting up and burning the word of God. That he's having people read it, and as they read it, he's cutting bits of it and throwing it in the fire. And so what we see is that there has become this shift where Leviticus 26, you obey, I'll bless. We've seen that, and now they've gone to the other place. They're disobedient, they're unfaithful, and now God is bringing judgment. Okay, And so this is important for us to understand as we look at history, as we look at our own place in history and what God is doing, we must understand that God is sovereign over earthly kingdoms. God is sovereign over the movement of world powers and earthly kingdoms. Okay, That is important for us to understand that God is faithful even whenever it, it, it's not, we're not sure exactly what he's doing. And part of that faithfulness includes his judgment. Okay, we have to have a category for that. We have to be able to understand that. Even as we sing songs about he, he's never going to let us down and that, that we'll see him do it again, Like we have to make sure that we have a God-centered view of what he's doing in the world and in history and not a me-centered view of what he's doing in the world and history. Because okay? if we're thinking about me and what God's going to do for me, and, and, and then, we're, you know what, then I don't know if that song's true. If we're just saying you know, that he's never going to let me down based off of what I want, listen, you're going to be let down based off of what you want, right? God will not play to your idols and to your idea of prosperity, but he is a good father, and he does know what's best for you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. And part of being a good father is disciplining your kids. Okay? Part of being a good father is disciplining your kids. Hebrews says that, that God disciplines those whom he loves. And no discipline is, is fun or enjoyable at the time, but in the end it produces a harvest of righteousness. Okay, we need to have that framework as we process what we go through as a people, as a church, as a nation, as a world. We need to make sure we understand that, hey, God is good even in the midst of his judgment and of his discipline. And if we don't understand that, we will mistake his discipline for his lack of faithfulness, or we will mistake his discipline for his abandonment. We will mistake his discipline for his incompetency or his inability to intervene. And if we do that, we are led into despair, and we are led into disobedience, into forsaking him. So we have to have that category in place, that God is sovereign over the world powers and the movements of nations taking power or not, so much so that he uses pagan nations to judge his own people. So here's what we see. It says that in the, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But listen to this. This is not on Nebuchadnezzar. This is not about his power because verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. Like You need to understand that this is not like, the Lord fell asleep for a moment, and oh, Nebuchadnezzar snuck in there and tackled his people, and he'll have to fix. No, no, no. The, the Lord was active in this, so much so that he gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Well, why would he do that? Well, as I've already mentioned, there was, there was a, promise and a, a promise of blessing and a promise of curse and judgment if he disobeyed. But some of those details are actually helpful to uh, validate God's control of the situation because not just was it a general disobedience and a lack of concern for the heart of God, there was some 
some specific things. And beyond even Jehoiakim's nonsense of burning the, the Bible and those sorts of things, there was a, some specific things. And one that I want to point out to you specifically is in Leviticus 25, there was a command for the people of God to let the land rest. That every seven years, they were to give the land a Sabbath. So you may be familiar with the idea of Sabbath from God creating the world, and he did it in the first six days, and then he took a rest, right? And he commands us to obey the Sabbath. And so we work six days, and then we need to rest. That's a part of acknowledging that God is God and we are not, right? That's a teaching for another day. But God commands that personally, but then he commanded it corporately or nationally for the people of Israel. He said, hey, every, on the seventh year, you need to give the land a rest. Well, listen, that sounds good. I want you to think about what that looks like for an agriculturally-based people. You don't just do that on a whim. That means you're preparing the other six years, right? That means you're putting aside. That means you're cutting down profits so that you can save. That means you're, you're planning, you're disciplining yourself to make sure that on that seventh year you have enough to eat, right? But they were commanded to do this, to let the land rest. Why? To prove that he's God, but also because God knows how his world, you know, the earth he made, he knows how it's going to work best. Right? You study agriculture, you study, like, they get that now, right? Isn't it fun when science catches up with the Bible? And they're like, oh, you need to diversify what you plant here and what you, you know, and you give the, yeah, it makes sense. Well, God knew that, right? So he's telling them, hey, every seventh year, that land's got to rest. Well, listen, for 490 years, never once did they take a Sabbath with their land. They just didn't. You talk about collective disobedience, right? You talk about a people disregarding their God's commands. And this is just one aspect, right? It plays out in more interpersonal, you know, sins that we're more familiar with. But this is one aspect where God commands something and people just dismissed it. How often do we do that? I know God tells me I should do this, right? I know he says I should wait for marriage until, you know, we have sex. Or I know he tells me I should give part of my money away so I don't become greedy. I know that he says I should, you know, I should save. Or I, I know that he says I should, you know, not watch those films, but, you know, it's not that big a deal. I know that he said, you know, fill in the blank, right? What, what God is serious about, sometimes we just, dis, we just kind of go, ah, it's not that big a deal. Or, oh, I forgot. You know, I didn't, I didn't plan, so I, I got to keep going, right? But instead of repenting and doing it the next time, they just continue this perpetual disobedience regarding the land for 490 years. Well, if you're a math person and you divide 490 by 7, how many, what, what are they going to owe God? 70 years. Guess how long, that's right, guess how long they're in Babylon? 70 years. Okay, so you see, you don't get away with things with God, right? You don't, you don't get to just steal from him or take from him or disregard him thinking you're getting away with it. God will get what is owed him. And he prophesied this regularly. He, he called, for the 490 years, he was calling them to repent. There were prophets saying, hey guys, uh, we, we're, we're failing here. You're failing here. Like, we have to repent. And they just, just failed to do it. And, and it was outlined for them several times, even explicitly said long before this takes place in Isaiah chapter 39. This comes from an exchange in, his, in uh, I think, 2 Kings chapter 20, where Hezekiah is the king. And there's a particular, you know, issue with him where he's beginning to trust. He's sort of, he's sort of starting to, to buddy up with Babylon and some of the Chaldean uh, countries and sort of starting to lean into an alliance with them politically. Rather than trusting God, he's starting to explore that deal. And Isaiah says, listen, you've messed up. 
And here's what's coming. He says, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will come, they shall be taken away and they shall be made eunuchs in the place or in the palace of the king of Babylon. We're going to get into that next week. But here's the deal. Over and over again, that's recorded in 2 Kings and in then Isaiah's book where he's you know, writing down his own prophecies in Isaiah chapter 39. Uh, and, and other times God warned them that this very thing in very specific detail was going to happen if they didn't repent. And they didn't repent and these things happened. So God is a God of judgment and he uses the nations, even pagan nations, to judge his people. And listen, so we have, to, like, we have to have a category that allows for God's movement in our world to be discipline of his people, judgment of his people, even when it looks like evil is winning. I want you to, as you read, you see that not only did they come and besiege Jerusalem, but and not only did they take the king captive, but they, what, they did something very personal to the people of God. They went in, and, but... It, even though it says God gave it to them, but they took some of the vessels of the house of God, right? So these are, these are treasures of, like these are, these are um, things that, that were kept in the temple um, that, were, that were precious to the people and to the worship of God. And they took those vessels to the house of, or, uh, from the house of God, and he brought them, the king Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, which has some particular relevance we're going to look at next week, related back to the Tower of Babel and how the spirit of of Babylon is, is at work. So we'll get into that next week. But it, it takes them back to the land of Shinar, where their pagan worship was sort of centralized, and to the house of his god, Nebuchadnezzar's god. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Why do they do this? This is a way of saying, look, our God is better than your God. This is a way of gloating that they've been conquered, that our God is better than your God. Our God is greater than your God. And so they're going to take the, the, the treasury from the God of Israel and put them in the God probably of Marduk. Like the, the Babylon's a primary, you know, they, they several, but that, that primary God that they worship, he put them in there. And that's a way of saying, hey, our God is better than your God. I want you to hear that not only did God like allow that, he, he actually caused that. He gave them over. Not only his people, not just the king, but actually some of these things. Now listen, we need to, we need to understand that our God is sovereign. When we think otherwise, when we don't know how this is going to pan out for our good, when it seems like evil has won even, our God is still in control. Our God is still in control. Listen, God's going to do some amazing things. He's got the long view in mind. He's not freaking out in this moment. He's going to do some amazing things to get that back. He will not be mocked. He will get his, right? And he used the Assyrian Empire to, con- to, to punish and conquer Israel, the northern kingdom, right? But if they only lasted, they were great world power. You read about them in your history books. But guess what? Assyria, they ended up getting conquered by Babylon, right? God used Assyria to judge his people Israel, but then he used Babylon to judge Assyria for conquering his people Israel, right? And then Babylon's going to come along, and they're going to conquer the nation of Judah. They're going to take some of stuff from God's temple, put it in their own, gloat as though they've been victorious. But the people of God, God himself knows, I'm not lost. I'm allowing my people to be disciplined. I will get my glory back. I'm not worried about you mocking me in the short term. 
God is not worried about being mocked or looking as though he has, has failed in the short term. So often that's what we think. Oh, but you know what? It, people, the world's going to look at the church. The world's going to wonder, you know, is it going under? And listen, we don't know. God may be judging. Like, we don't know all that's happening there. But God, what we do know is that he's in control. He's not fretting. He's not in fear. He is on his throne, and he's using the nations to judge his people. And secondly, okay, so not only is he uh, sovereign over the exchange of world powers and the movements of empires, not only has he not lost control, but he's actually going to use it to discipline his people, right, to teach his people something about how serious he is and how faithful he is. But then secondly, he's actually going to use it to advance and to expand his presence among the nations. So God is sovereign enough to use these, these terrible atrocities for the judgment of his people, but also for the advancement of his nations. I want you to think about the way that, that there's an article attached to your app about how God has used nations to accomplish his purpose. And you think about, um, you think about the advancements that the Roman Empire is going to do later as far as infrastructure and roads and, and those sorts of things. Even the cross, the, this idea of crucifixion, like that God used that pagan country and their development, their expansion of power and empire, and knowing he's going to take them down eventually but he's going to use them to pave the way for the gospel to go forward in a way that it wouldn't have been able to do. If Rome didn't have the power that it had and hadn't advanced the infrastructure and the roads, the communication system that it, that it did, even Persia before that, like you think about the advancement, God is going to use all of that to make way for his plan to be accomplished. I encourage you to read that article and then to place us, ourselves, in that moment of history. That we, even in our moment of history, that God, the same God who's ruling then, who is sovereign over the exchange of world powers, is still on the throne today. He's still in power over our circumstances. And his main agenda, not even agenda, because that sounds like something you, you're going to try to accomplish. His main sovereign plan is to advance his kingdom. Period. So what does that mean for us? That means... America exists to bring glory to Jesus Christ. America exists to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And that means this country will be used for his glory. Maybe through judgment, maybe through conquering, maybe in our prosperity, it's already been used increasingly. You think about the prosperity that America has brought to the world, the interconnectedness of our world now that has mostly been championed and engineered by our ingenuity, by our prosperity, and the way he's already and is going to continue to use what America has done to reach the people who are unreached. Listen, God is, is sovereign over all the world powers, and that includes America. So listen, we as God's people, it doesn't mean that we're are not patriotic that we don't care about our country. It's not a wrong thing to be American. But we need to do a little bit of a DTR, if you've ever heard in relationships where you got to kind of define the relationship, right? When you're dating and you're like, I, you know, I don't, or we're kind of talking, and, but you're talking to somebody and you think you like them, but then you're like, well, they're talking to somebody else. Like, what's going on? They, they seem to not be all that faithful to me. Like, what's happening here? We need to have a conversation. Are we exclusive or are we not? We need to do a little bit of that with our country, okay, church? People of God, we need to do a little bit of that. We need to look at our country and we need to be grateful for it, okay? We need to be grateful for it because we have been blessed, okay? This is an incredible place. You're here on your own free will this morning. No fear of arrest, no fear of persecution. You get to freely gather and worship King Jesus this morning. Praise God. And most of y'all drove really nice vehicles here and you're going to go home to pretty nice houses, 
We have been blessed, people. God has blessed this nation. Okay, but we need to be clear. God has not made a covenant with this nation. Okay, God is not, his primary agenda is not to preserve American democracy. Does that mean he wants America to, you know, crumble? Does that mean he's judging us? Am I trying to be prophetic and say that this is, no. But we need to have the right perspective and worldview Okay, it's like back to the relationship thing. When, when, young, when young men are trying to, you know, pursue a woman, a lot of times I have to have this conversation with them. Hey, hey, buddy, she's not your purpose, okay? She's not your purpose. Whoever she is, she don't want to be your purpose. You may think she'll be flattered by you be ogling over her and like, let me do everything for you and I don't have any other purpose but to serve you. She's going to be like, dude, get back, right? Because a, a woman doesn't want a guy that's just, like she wants a man that has a purpose, a calling in his life that she can be called alongside and serve along with, right? Same, same for women. Like, you, you, what I'm saying is you approach that marriage relationship, you can't make them God. You can't assume that they're going to fulfill all your needs. When you have the wrong expectations about what that relationship is going to be, it's going to lead to the deterioration of that relationship. When you expect your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend to be your ultimate fulfillment, guess what? They can't carry that weight. They can't. They will let you down, and it will crumble your relationship. Well, listen, same is true with our country. Grateful for it. Love it. Seek its good. Jeremiah 28, even in the exile to, to these foreign countries, seek the welfare of the city, of the nation. Absolutely. Fight for the good of the collective country. Absolutely. But put your hope in it. Absolutely not. Right? So we as Americans, we, we, can, we can be proud of that. We can... We can I love that identity, but it needs to be secondary to our identity as citizens of heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 20, anchors us in this hope and, and really puts us right back in a posture that ultimately is what led Daniel and his friends to be faithful in the way that they were. And Paul says this, brothers, join me in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, and that's going to be important for us as we move uh, in these days, keep your eyes on the example of those who walk according to us. For many of whom I'm often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship, our citizenship, your citizenship, church, is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. Right? Not the next election, not, not a politician. We await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things, even to subject all things to himself. That means countries, that means America, that means any other country, like all things he subjected to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, church, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, this is the words of Paul that, that are so helpful to anchor us right back in to what Daniel is about to experience and his friends are about to be experience as being carried off into exile. The way that they were able to live faithfully is that Daniel knew this very thing that, hey, what's happening right now is not outside of my God's hand. It's not outside of my God's hand. I don't have to fret. I don't have to fear. I can remain faithful in this moment. So here's the deal. We don't know what the future holds, Right? We know that America is going to be used to glorify Christ. And he'll, he'll accomplish that however he wants. But what we do know is that we, as the people of God, have a citizenship beyond that. 
that actually allows us to be better citizens of heaven, That's sort of, or of, of, of America. That's sort of another sermon. I want you to think about it. it. Knowing that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven allows us to be better citizens of this country or whatever country we live in. Why? Because we have, we have reasonable expectations of what this country can give. Okay? When you have unreasonable expectations of what this country or whatever country you're living in, it, what, what they can give to you, you're going you're gonna to turn into some really weird activism things that are ultimately going to lead to your disappointment, your frustration, and, and possibly even the destruction and the undoing of this blessed country that God's given us, right? So that's, again, that's sort of another, that's a deep end that I don't have time to navigate us through today. But, but knowing rightly where we stand is primarily a citizen of heaven, that helps us define the relationship with where we are now. That helps us define our identity is primarily in our King Jesus, that we're looking to him to come. And that allows us to be faithful. That allows us to not lose hope regardless of what's happening. And that allows us to be used and to leverage what God has blessed us with for his kingdom and to trust that he is still in control. He is still on the throne. And therefore, we as his people don't fret and we can worship, we can remain faithful regardless of what shakes out here and on earth, right? In the world, in, in our country, in our state, in our, in our city. All right. So, we as God's people, I want you to, I want you to think. I want you to actually reflect about the way you process current events, the way you process the trajectory of history, and I want you to just confess, say it out loud even, God is in control. Go ahead, church, let's say that together. God is in control. Okay? And if we belong to him, we don't have to know how it's going to end. But knowing the one who knows how it's going to end, that's enough. Okay? We don't have to know how it's going to end. But knowing the one who knows, belonging to the one who knows, that's enough. That gives us faith. That gives us a firm foundation to stand. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, we don't, we don't just become citizens of heaven just because we're American or because you're born into a Christian family. But the invitation for you today, if you don't know him, is to pass from death to life. The Bible says you're dead in your sins. You have no hope. Of, it doesn't matter how good you're going to be or how, how much you're going to accomplish. It says you're dead in your sins. But the good news is that Christ came to save sinners. And that includes you. You say, well, I don't, you don't know what I've done. You, it doesn't matter. Jesus knows. And it says that while you're still a sinner, Christ gave himself for you. You can come and meet him for the first time today and be, be born again, pass from death unto life, and today can be your new birthday where you become a citizen of heaven. Amen? That's the offer of the gospel, that Jesus Christ paid for your sins, no matter what they were, and if you confess them and trust in him as your Savior, declaring him as Lord, you can be saved. And then church, those of you that maybe that was years ago, months ago, decades ago, May our hope be renewed once again that we are citizens of heaven and we await a Savior 
who is Jesus Christ, the King of kings. Sovereign over world powers, sovereign over leaders. And, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, sovereign over your life. Insignificant as it may seem, still sovereign in those moments. So, we have a hope, church. We have a hope. His name is Jesus. We're going to respond and worship him now. God, I pray pray that you would help us to um, rightfully process and ponder and respond to you being the king of kings. That that wouldn't just be something that is said, but something that actually penetrates our hearts, that brings hope, that, that diffuses fear and anxiety over what's to come or what's happening right now in our lives. Father, that, that you being on the throne would, would penetrate our hearts and, and set us free to live radically as citizens of heaven. And that that will have a transformative and radical impact on the earth and the people that you've placed us in here, the people that you've placed us around. So would you do that work, Jesus? Help us to, to become your disciples, to, to, to become even closer to you in this moment. For those that don't know you, Lord, would you give them the faith to receive you today? For those of us who do, would you give us faith to walk closer, to walk nearer, and to trust more? We ask and hope these things in your name now, Jesus.